Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talking Addiction and Recovery. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier, and I am joined with a special guest today, Brianne Davis. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having. <laughs> so from bringing compelling characters to life on screen as an actress, calling the shots behind the scenes as a director and producer, lending your thoughts and opinions to the podcast Airways, and even penning your debut literary, literary work, You've emerged in the entertainment industry as a powerhouse female creative in 2021. There is a lot to your background with some stuff you've done. We're going to get into it. So one of my questions is with your background with mm -hmm. the, the acting and the directing, the producing, what led you to actually focus more on this issue with sex and love addiction and all these other issues you've been working on? That is a really good question because a lot of people are like, what are you doing? You've been working for 20 years as an actress. Like I'm one of those actresses that have been around forever, been in a bunch of things and you would never recognize me. I think I've gotten, you know, asked for my autograph, like a handful of two handfuls of times. But uh, after, you know, working in the business so long and telling stories and becoming other women, I realized like I needed a bigger purpose in my life that, being in Hollywood and being an actress and a director and stuff doesn't fulfill that God-shaped hole because I'm an addict. I'm addicted to people. I'm addicted to tension. That's what sex and love addicts are. You know, they go into fantasy. And as an actress, I live in fantasy. You know, every day I'm playing a different character. Either I'm on set or auditioning. And so, you know, my therapist told me I picked the worst career for my addiction. <laughs> So after I hit a decade of recovery in sex and love addiction and was released from that bondage of self, you know, released from that addiction to people and situations and fantasy and intrigue and flirting and being on Instagram, getting likes, I, I, all that was gone. When I hit 10 years, this thing happened where it was like, God told me you need to be of service bigger than your community of sex and love addicts. And yeah, that was the start of it. I just stepped into, I guess, my purpose is what I, what I look at now. Do you think that it's a very interesting point you bring up with your career mm -hmm. and then the addiction, because I've seen that a lot with other people too. You know, I had a guy who was a musician and he would have so many ups and downs. He would do a lot of, you know, doing shows and he would have a lot of energy and then he would crash for a while and come to find out he had bipolar. Mm. And part of it was difficult to recognize because people were saying, well, yeah, that's what happens when you're a musician. You have a lot of highs and a lot of energy and then you crash because it's so exhausting. But that's something that kind of happened with you too, is that sometimes your career, what you do, can sort of either hide or mimic that type of behavior. Well, yeah, being an actress, I mean, you get a lot of attention. You get, but then at the same time, you get a lot of rejection. So when you're an addict, we have we have those highs where we think our ego, our narcissism is like, we're like the shit, no one can touch <laughs> us, right? But then at the same time, a minute later, we are the worst piece of garbage on this planet because we have low self-esteem, low self-worth, we're fear of intimacy, fear of being loved, fear of abandonment. And I think definitely the entertainment business amplifies those highs and lows. You know, I, you, every a hundred reject auditions, I get maybe one part. So it's like this constant battle of my worthiness. And I thought, you know, when I hit that plateau, when I get a series and I'm a series regular and I'm working all the time that I would be fulfilled and I would feel, you know, complete, right? Like we look for that job to complete us. But what happened when I got six on history and was on it for two years, I was so depressed. You know, I lost a baby. I had a real miscarriage. Um, you know, I was getting, we got pregnant on the second season. I lost the baby on the first season and I thought like I would feel complete and I didn't. It was like, oh, I've been striving for this thing that everybody wants, like to be on a TV show, a successful TV show, be up for an Emmy, that kind of stuff. And it, I didn't feel complete. And I'm like, wow, 
I've been striving for something that's never going to happen. If I get the Oscar, if I get the million dollar house, if I get all that, it's, it doesn't make me happy. And I know this when you're in the rooms, I see people that are on, you know, episodic television, get a million dollars an episode and they're miserable. Right. But yeah. I had to see it for myself. And I just, I just couldn't do just do that anymore. It's just a part of me. I'm an actor, but it doesn't complete me as a person. The and entertainment business. Yeah. yeah, it can't sustain you. I mean, look how many drug addicts and people lose their, you know, sobriety and are on their eighth marriage or whatever in this business. Yeah, they think it's like even small ways with people, they think like, oh, if I get this next job or if or I'm if working, I get that it's car. okay. Or, or if, if I, I get, get a house girl. or like a place yeah. to live. And I've seen people get all those and nothing changes. I just yeah. often hear more reasons why things aren't. It, there's always another thing then because then they experience it and they realize things haven't changed or maybe it changed momentarily, but then it quickly fell through. And no, and the more stuff you get, you realize you have to amplify the next goal. And I, I would be on a job, you know, when I was shooting prom night for Sony screen gems and, and the lead parts with Brittany snow. And I was like already thinking, what's my next job instead of being in the present, I was future tripping or I was in the past, like regretting what I did on the last job, instead of just being present where I was and enjoying what I was doing, I was always in the future or always in the past looking for something else, some shiny object to complete me. One of the things I like about your work is you you talk about sex and love addiction, which I believe is one of the addictions that often goes like hush hush, let's not talk about it. It it just some comparisons I think to some other addictions that people have. You know, like with gambling, you can't tell someone just gambled. With someone who has like a sex addiction, you can't tell that someone just maybe had a relapse. Yeah, like you, what you can tell with like someone being under the influence of alcohol and drugs. But I think sex and love addiction, society has a problem seeing it and recognizing it. Oh yeah. And that's even more difficult than the strides we've made with like substance use addiction. Oh, if you say you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, people understand that and they 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 you know give you a pass. It's a chemical addiction. You're addicted to a chemical. But if you say you're a sex and love addict, there is so much shame and stigma. Just on my show, Secret Life Podcast, I cannot get a man to come on and say he's a sex and love addict. And any women I've had come on, they've all changed their names. A lot of people are anonymous because there's so much shame. Nobody wants to talk about it. The only way it's talked about if it's like a Tiger Woods or somebody's caught cheating and then they, you know, their wife is going to leave them. So they go to sex rehab. But really, they say 6% of the United States. 30 million people are sex and love addicts in the United States. That statistic was six years ago. And I am telling you, after being in the program for almost 12 years, it has blown up. Our society is having so much trouble connecting their intimacy and sexuality, especially with the porn industry being so excessive, you know, uh, Instagram, the filters, the always swiping left and right, looking for that big and better, you know, it is, people are struggling right now with this and they do not understand. And usually under those chemical addictions, you go, you get rid of alcohol or drugs. There's usually an Al-Anon, you got to hit an Al-Anon meeting and under the Al-Anon is usually sex and love addiction. I mean, we have people that come in with 30 years off heroin and they say, I can quit heroin, but I can't quit her. I don't want to be in these rooms. I've, I've sponsored people that have had 40 years in AA and they said, I was told to come in here 20 years ago and I did not want to come in. We're like, you know how they say A is the last house on the block. They, yeah. say, they say sex and love addicts anonymous, which we call slaw. Slaw is the like shack in the back that no one wants to come to. It's like the last stop. It's like the worst place, but it is the best place in the world. Honestly, walking in there 11 and a half years ago was the best decision I've ever made for myself. Do you think that part of it, as we're talking, the mm -hmm. education piece seems interesting because I have plenty of people in the last year who've been referred to me and come see me for pornography 
And that is one where I have more people coming to get help for that. There's one day of my week at my practice where it's all, it's just people with yeah. for pornography, but the topic of sex and love addiction doesn't necessarily get touched on or brought up. It needs to. <laughs> so are we looking at the fact that there is like people are even looking at pornography as like a separate issue, but we're not deciding to bring in like maybe there's sex and love addiction as a part of this, even with that yes, strong connection I think, of an issue. Yeah, I think they're very connected. Almost everybody I know has, a, a, I didn't have a porn addiction, but what it is about porn is porn is a fantasy. So the main thing in sex and love addiction is we go to fantasy, positive fantasy, negative fantasy, and it involves a person or involves a sexual act. And we act out sexually and escape our reality by using people or sexual acts. So, you know, we sexualize stress, guilt, loneliness, anger, shame, fear, and envy. And one of the ways people do that is they act inward and acting inward is going to porn. So you're actually not connecting with another soul. Your soul, you're in this fantasy, looking at this screen, thinking that's what real intimacy looks like. That's what sex is supposed to look like. But it's not real. Those are actors. That's not what real intimacy looks like. So people are struggling connecting their sexuality and that in watching so much porn, it desensitizes that part of our brain. So we can't usually perform unless it's amplified in that fantasy. And that's where it gets really tricky. And then what we do is we then go to somebody and then assign magical qualities to them. We idealize and pursue them. And then you get into a relationship and you realize that person does not fill that fantasy. It's incapable. They're incapable of filling it because we've already had like what it's going to look like with this person. And then it doesn't match to reality. Yeah. When I started working with pornography, uh, with with issues like that with with clients, one of the things I drew, I'm gonna send a copy to you to see what you think of it. But it was a mm -hmm. chasing the fantasy mm -hmm. type thing, and I have the word fantasy is kind of up in the air, kind of like unattainable. It is, and I, and I have this character who, as they attempt to chase it, they go past like impulse, you know, risks, high risk situations, temptations. Mm -hmm. But then as they chase it, they end up in what is drawn as like a storm and a, like, it's just a it's destruction the the hell. <laughs> that they ended, but they never, the, the whole fantasy words unattainable. Yeah. And that's different with a lot of other things, because when I work with substance users, mm -hmm. they, there really isn't like a fantasy anymore. They've, they've know what the drug's going to do or the alcohol is going to do. Mm -hmm. They've experienced that much. Like there is no more high that they are magically trying to to search for they usually experience those and then they kind of tip the other way which is then it becomes the they're tale dependent of two cities right yeah because they're addicted to that chemical substance and they can't live without it right so but with with porn and sex that fantasy chasing can continue and continue it's, and yeah continue. it's a progressive it's a progressive brain disease your brain progressively gets worse and worse because each person is a different drug for you so it's not just the same heroin over and over again each person gives you a different high and you have to amplify those situations so you put yourself in more dangerous situations you go for married people you you know you swipe left and right constantly i mean I know people that have sexually acted out with five people, seven people, eight people in a day, but then at the same time, they're sexual anorexics where you're addicted to it, but you've been hurt or abandoned. So you shut down completely and you don't have a relationship for two years, three years, 10 years, 15 years. So it's this swing. And then we you know, we get addicted to one person that usually doesn't show up for us. It's an un unavailable person. And we keep going back to bad, painful relationships, trying to get this person to love us because inside we don't love ourselves. So it's that like push, pull, rush, you know, come closer, push away. It's, it's exhausting. And when you live your life chasing that, when you walk around and in the world wanting someone to complete you, looking for them to give you that high, that's what I say. It's like raping other people of energy. 
I walked around in the world going, give me attention, flirt with me, intrigue with me, tell me I'm all, like, I need this constantly. And the moment my boyfriend or my partner or the person I was dating stopped doing that, I would be looking for the next person. It was just, it's, ex- it's the most exhausting disease because it goes untreated. And then watching movies and songs and society, looking for our soulmate, that person to complete us, to fix us. It's, it's just, it's just a big lie we're living in. And I just wanted to come out as a woman and say, Hey, I'm a sex and love addict. There's nothing wrong with it. And there's hope on the other side. Which is great too, because there are a lot of people who I think, I think I read it in your book about even people in your industry you've seen at meetings or you've known about this, but a lot of that's secretive. And like you said, mm-hmm. people have, have used different names to remain anonymous, but that secrecy doesn't help shed a light on the issue that is going on without people talking about it and writing a book about it or having a podcast to it. it, it it's not going to be noticed by people outside of that who need to to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That is the moment, you know, my, the, the, the 12 steps, you know, sex and love addicts anonymous. I'm a part of a 12 step. We're usually not supposed to say we're supposed to like not tell people we're a part of it, which makes no sense (laughs) to me. You know, I understand, you know, but a decade I had to keep it just mine. You know, I had to do my withdrawal. I had to go through that pain. I had to let go of all those behaviors that I was doing to, you know, act out is what we call them. And so there is a moment where you're supposed to keep it like really close and safe and work on yourself. But when you get to a point after a decade, now it's time to be of service bigger than yourself. And what I was finding and why I wrote the book I was finding that every time I was going to a meeting, 20 year olds were coming in, 19 coming in, struggling so much with their sexuality and, you know, looking for that person to complete them. And it just broke my heart. And like I said, the porn and the social media is really, they say it's an epidemic. Like we're about to hit an epidemic with this generation, how disconnected they are truly there's great things about the internet, but there is very dangerous things. And I just had this moment where I was listening to these young 20 year olds, just little babies trying to like figure out themselves, people committing suicide and going to jail. I spoke at jails for two and a half years for this addiction, LA County. I went and spoke to women jails and I know people that have been murdered for this. And I just had this voice come like, have to be of service. So I wrote this article for Huff Post, pretty much outing myself. Mm-hmm. My here is what it's about, you know, wrong, good or bad. You're you me, but this is the truth. And and I, you know, made amends and whatever. And the out like, yes, this is what we're gonna do. And then I wrote the book. Um, in 45 days, the first draft. And it was, wow. I honestly don't feel like I wrote the book, (laughs) you know, but I didn't, I never wanted to write a book. I never wanted to come out, but it was like bigger than me. And I was reading it the other day for the audible when I was doing the audio book. And I was like, this is pretty good. And my husband looked at me and he was like, yeah, you wrote it. I was like, honestly, I didn't write it. I think my higher power wrote it. It's great. I I really enjoyed the book. There's a lot of things that I highlighted. Um, oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. Some of the stuff that really stood out, you know, one of them, as we were talking about like chasing the fantasy, we talked about like risks and temptations was, you know, like some seeing those things as red flags. And one of your quotes that I love is I tended to paint those red flags of bright green. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very insightful, you know, acknowledgement because in, as a therapist, and when we talk about like relapse prevention, we always get into like paying attention to the red flags, but yeah, reading that and you saying that it's like, sometimes you see those red flags and they become bright green. Yeah. Because you don't want to see them because you want to be, keep doing what you're doing. You want to believe that that situation or that person, you know, people are think people every 
they're not capable of it. Their humanship I got, or it was friendship. Or a call. Every relationship, I would not look at the person nor make up I'm what I wanted them to be, which was not reality. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the other part that I, I thought was really great with your book was you dive into a lot of stuff with relationships, not just with the ones in relation to the, the sex and love, but you also talked about family history. You talked about with parents, you talked about with the high school situations that you discuss. So it's not just like love and sex, but it's just also other relationships that we have in our lives. And you really did a good job of addressing ones that were, well, what does this have to do with it? But you draw a real clear distinction as to why that was important for you to eventually like address and talk about. Yeah, it's 10 years of therapy right there. <laughs> That's um, hardcore therapy for eight, nine, 10 years, not twice a day, twice a week. I, I was really into therapy while I did the 12 steps because my therapist told me you cannot fix this disease. You're going to have this disease for the rest of your life, but you can get the healthy tools to manage it. And she said, you don't just act out with the person you're attracted to. You act out with every single relationship. And there was this aha moment for me um, I think it was a couple of years after I got sober in slaw, I was sitting there and I had a bad audition and I remember calling a girlfriend and I was telling her, you know, the whole situation, what happened for 30 minutes, I kept her on the phone and I got off the phone and I realized I didn't feel any better. And I picked up the phone and I called somebody else and did it for 30 minutes. Then I called somebody else. I did it four times. I called four different people sucked that energy out of them to try to make me feel better. And it, it was like this light bulb moment happened. And I was like, oh my God, I do this with everybody. I suck people's energy when I'm depleted. Like that is not fair to walk in this world and use other people's energy and attention to make me better. Like where is, I need to adult up. And that's why I write all about those relationships because sex and love addiction is not just about sex. I haven't had many sexual partners, you know, like I have never had a one night stand. I'm still a sex addict because I use sex to manipulate and control other people. I use my sexuality as a tool. I, that's what I do and to get my way. And I use love to fill this fantasy because I don't want to live in reality. And I really wanted to do Secret Life of the Hollywood Sex and Love at and put everything in that book I've ever thought, felt, done. And you also do. other you people's open it story. Up. I yeah, do. I, you, it's like a therapy session. And you talk <laughs> about is. your therapy sessions, which is great too. I'm like, as a reader, I'm like, I really like her therapist. Like this is... Doctor, yeah, she's, she's no joke. And you know, I, that's what I wanted to write a book where you understand the disease and it's like one long share that people in my program read it. And they said, it's like a really long share and that you put everything out there, but I wanted to entertain people, but also educate them on this gnarly, deadly disease. Because listen, the number one reason people lose their sobriety in AA and NA is over relationships. More murdered over relationships and love. Look at a dateline. What a date? Every dateline is a love triangle, some <laughs> relationship, but it's no joke. I mean, right. this is a really deadly disease, and people, like I said, commit suicide over relationships. One thing I liked with your book that was different than other books I've read, and I've noticed this the more I've read, is there's a lot of addiction books historically have focused so much on all the the war stories, so to speak, and then yeah. they they get to the part of getting better, and that's like one chapter of the book, and like all the other ones are filled with like this is you know all the the details and stories of what happened. What's different with your book? Mm -hmm. is you actually described 
how things changed and mm -hmm. the work it took to do it. It wasn't just go to a meeting or it wasn't just go to therapy, but you opened up and shared like, well, what was it in therapy that you did and helped with? What was it about going to meetings that helped you to do that? Sometimes people are just like, well, yeah, I went to treatment and I got better or I went to, to AA or NA and I just started doing good. And it's like story over. And it's like, well, that's not the end. Like there's a lot to go through through that, but you actually really highlight some of the things that people and, and with your own story need to do to make the things happen. And you don't always hear those and read those. No, I told you, I really dug deep. I mean, I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to write this and put it out into the world, I will go to the ends of the earth and tell you exactly how it looks, how it feels, every thought the addict had, you know, every situation when they say they're not going to do something, then they turn around and do it. And then how they come out of that slip and the walk, like I wanted every detail in there, how debilitating the withdrawal process is you know, detail oriented. So that was what was really important. And I wanted to take the reader on a ride and get in the mind of a, a sex and love addict because nobody talks about it. And I just like, and here's the beautiful thing. My mom read it. And if you can imagine, cause it goes <laughs> really dark, it goes really dirty and sexual, you know, well, we use people. So it goes really, there are some shameful moments and my mom read it and she called me and she said, for the first time in 10 years, I understand your addiction completely. And then she wow. said, and yeah, it was, she was crying and it was such a beautiful moment. And then she said to me, and I've done some of those things too. And I, she was crying and my husband was crying and I was like stunned. And then I phone with her cause we were on FaceTime, and I looked at my husband and I was like, <gasps> Like, like that little girl just needed her mom to like see her. And it was just felt so beautiful that my mom could read it and go, oh my God, I've done some of those things. And that's what I wanted people to get from. Well, and you also talk about your relationship with your mom in the book. Yeah, which is. So, yeah. so that's a whole nother. Yeah. So it's not just like her reading oh, about no, your goes, story, but dad. it does also get into your relationship with your parents and, and their history. So that, that also is something that not a lot of people are willing to forthcome and share is some of those things about family history and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, that must've been a yeah, lot for we, her to be willing to read that too. Yeah. And, you know, we had, a we had a moment for a minute and she said, you know, can you change this or can you do this? And, and I thought about it and I, one, I honored one thing she said, you know, I honored, I protected somebody, but I said, I'm sorry, I can't take that out. That's part of the story. And people have to understand why this character Roxanne, who is a part me does what she does, because I really want to see that and show that everybody's had situations and, and how we act after them, we have to own them and look at them. Some of the darkest moments in our life created who we are, but we can't carry those baggage anymore. But yeah, it goes there with the, the background, the, the parents, the, I mean, honestly, when I, when I read the audible, it was like the work I, I thought I wanted all out of my skin again a part of me is like why did I write this all down I should have taken chapter <laughs> five six and seven out like those were the hardest ones really those were the hardest ones for me to write and rewrite and rewrite and then do the book I wanted to pretty much give up I said I said I don't want to do it anymore <laughs> and I, I just kept going because it's not about me this story is not about me it's really not you know I didn't write it for me I wrote it for other people because I want to help other people yeah one of the things you as speaking of baggage one of the quotes that I love from your book was mm -hmm. my baggage might not be my fault but I'm packing it was my responsibility a lot of people mm -hmm. struggle with that because of things that have happened to them or things that have been done to them by other people. And so that wasn't my fault. But then when it comes to making change, that's where it is your responsibility to make change. And I, I deal with that a lot as a therapist and, and clients. So 
at one point did you realize that's what you had to do was take responsibility for unpacking it after all this time? Well, cause it was killing me. Being playing a victim kills you. I mean, it kills your spirit. You, you take no ownership of any of thing you do and it makes you sicker. It really does. It's like, it's wishing that someone else, you know, to die, but you're drinking the poison constantly. So I just realized when I did my fourth and fifth step, it was brutal. It was 176 people on my list. I was the carrier of all resentments, luggage after luggage. And, you know, with all the trauma, the molestation, the situations I put myself in or people had done to me without and allowing them to, yes, all those bad things were done to me. And I created some of them, but that doesn't define who I am, right? Bad things. And I've done bad things. Doesn't make me a bad person. And I can't walk through this world playing a victim and being a child anymore. I have to step into adulthood and adult up and walk through that fire and walk through that pain and feeling the feelings I pushed down all those years by person acting out food, whatever. Like we all push down that pain. We go to shopping, what Instagram, Netflix watching. And I just opened the lid and let it all pour out and felt all that pain I've been bearing for years and years and years. And once that happens, you can't go back and play the victim. That does, that's not living in your power, you know? And that, that's what I knew, noticed when go through that and then something was done, I'd want to have justifiable anger towards someone. I don't have that luxury as an addict. I have to let go and let God. I have to have no expectations on people. I just have to keep my side of the street clean and know that what is ever done to me, myself because no one else is going to take care of me. I have to take care of my spiritual self. I have to take care of my inner child. I have to have healthy boundaries. I can't be going in the world like a toddler, you know, acting out because <laughs> I was hurt. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way or you're going to be miserable the rest of your life. And I know I loved reading this part and there's mm. another um, documentary that I've watched that reminds me exactly of this. And it's one of my favorite ones to share, but you talk about working in the basement with the volunteering you'd unbox donated groceries and stack them on shelves yeah it was dark and desolate room you said you were there for hours at a time all by yourself it reminds me of a documentary about um it's called unguarded and it features chris heron who's a basketball player and he talks about having to be in a room called the pot sink and he shares about how he left rehab and they allowed him to come back but he had to be in this room and do a lot of cleaning dishes all by himself. And he had to do it for a long time. And it was a small room doing dishes after dishes. But he said he found himself in there. Like that's where he really had to to spend time with himself and think for himself. And that was a huge moment for him. When I read, when I watched that, and then when I read your book with that point in it, that reminded me of it. Compliment. I, I just know that when you're an addict, we make everything all about us, right? I'm so selfish. I'm self-seeking. It's about me. The world revolves around me. When we get rid of that addiction, we have to fill it with something else. And service is the one thing that has kept me sober the last 12 years, 11 and a half years, because it's humility. It humbles you. It takes you back to the basics. And that is why it's so important. People are like, ew, service. Like, I don't want to be serviced. Why do I have to go community service or help someone else? Because when you help someone else, it helps you, makes you a whole person and that you are not the center of the universe. You are just a worker among workers on this planet. And that to me really grounded me and made it about being of service to other people. And that I am not the earth does not revolve around Brianne, like, you know, and I used to think that, and a lot of people still think that, and it's just very dangerous place to operate on this world. I think humility is a, a missing piece. That's not often yeah. brought up specifically with, you know, like addiction treatment and whatnot that I think humility is a really, because people hate that word. Part. Society has made people hate humility. Humility, I hated humility. It's like, I don't want to be humble. What are you talking about? I want to be like 
bigger than life, better, blah, 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 you know, but humility is just the most beautiful way to operate from whenever I'm in humility and I'm humble, I'm grateful for my life. I'm, I have gratitude towards other people. I show up when I say I'm going to show up. I keep my word. I'm a better human being. I operate from kindness. I, I keep my boundaries so no one can cross them. It's just such a place of self-love to have humility in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that this leads into, which I think you take it to a whole nother level, is self-care is always talked about in mm-hmm. in my profession with, you know, with therapy and counseling and treatment, like, what are you doing for self-care? What's your self-care? <laughs> but you dig deeper into this and take it to a whole new level about loving yourself. And I remember when I was reading your book, you're talking about one morning you decided to marry yourself mm-hmm. and you started doing things that were just with you. I think you talked about going to like a movie all by yourself. So I think that there is self-care and I think there is loving yourself. I think people struggle with self-care. I think people pretty much really neglect loving yourself. So how did you discover that necessity to love yourself, to do something like that? Like you, you married yourself. (laughs) I did. Yeah. Um, It just came to me because at a moment I remember I never wanted to get married. I never wanted to have kids. I always wanted to be that enigma that no one could catch because I go tell about my parents' marriage. It was not the healthiest. It didn't, you know, give health, healthy relationship. And that moment came for me when I realized, wait, people are always telling you to look for this person to marry and to be your partner in life, but you live and you die with yourself. Why why am I searching for this person that is going to complete me when they don't even go with me when I'm going to die? Like, it just hit me. Like, why don't I make that commitment to myself? Right? Like, I am my own fucking soulmate. No one else is my own soulmate. Just that moment came as like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to marry myself. I'm going to honor myself. I'm going to say these vows that I will never put myself in these situations that I will never let somebody treat me like this, that I won't treat myself like this and taking myself on dates and, you know, going to places that you normally just go on a date, I would do for myself and buying myself flowers and all those things that people like flowers, you know, taking a nice dinner, but I just wanted to like, honor myself, I live and I die with myself. So yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes that uh, the wedding scene is one of my favorite scenes I, I have ever written. It was amazing. Yeah, it was it was great to see. You know, like I say, people struggle with the idea of even self-care. But then when you talk about loving yourself is just a whole another level of doing that. And I think that that's missed with just with people in general, you know, like, let's not even take the addiction. Let's not take the sex addiction. Let's not take the drug addiction or the other issues, but just any individual there comfort level of being able to do something like that, you know, like, Hey, you know, turn your phone off, go to a movie by yourself or go do this. I think a lot of people would struggle with that. And I think that that's a good idea for a challenge, you know, a, a love yourself challenge. Can you do things like that? Yeah. Found my, you know, my core self love. It was from, you know, going through the withdrawal, healing from the trauma, and then finding those boundaries with other people, and then really working on self-love. That is the whole point program. It's not about finding the perfect partner or person to complete. It is really about finding yourself. And that's what I love about this program and my book. It's about finding yourself. It's not the girl meets the guy at the end and happily ever after. It's like, no, yeah, no, no, that's not story. what reality. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I hate, all, I used to love all those like Cinderella and like sleeping beauty. Like he's going to come and kiss you and like make your world. 
have all the money and you'll never have to work or blah, blah, blah. You know what they tell us women and men, they tell men all these stories, like find this woman and she'll make you feel or partner or person or whatever, whatever you fancy. It's just, it's ridiculous. So I'm so glad you read the book and, and you should make it a challenge for your patients. I would love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. I do think that that's going to be something that you could really challenge anyone to do is mm-hmm. a love yourself challenge. And, and how, how can you do that? What does and, that look what like? What that look like? What did you learn from it? Did you think you could do it in all those types of things? But I think that's, that's just taking it uh, to another level of just the self-care. And I think there's potential for even greater discovery by doing that versus just telling someone to go practice self-care. Like I said, self-care is important and it's got its uses, but I don't think it has the potential deeper healing than self-love has. Yeah. So I agree a hundred percent. I'm going to create something and send it to you. You should. (laughs) No, to to do that self-love, the self-care amplifies that self-love. So every time you do that self-care act, like, right. For me, I talk about it in the book, like writing three things I'm grateful for every night and they have to be different every night. You know, the meditating, which is still really difficult for me, praying to somebody bigger than me, a higher power universe, whatever. You know, turning my will over that I'm just a servant on this planet to help better, you know, or exercising or taking that shower or taking a nice bath. All those little acts compl- make yourself love even bigger, you know, to step into that deep, deep, deep core love for yourself. Because listen, my husband left me today and we've been together 16 years. So this was before I got sober. If my husband left me today. If my son, who I love more than life, left me, if the money was gone, if the career was gone, what never can be taken from me is the work I did on myself and how much I love myself. That can never be taken from me. And that to me means more than anything on this world and this planet. Take away everything else. I will have that. And I think I'm getting emotional, but I think like that's what I've been searching for is that unwavering love for myself that no one can take away. Right. And that that's an amazing thing that a lot of people, like where would they even connect with that? You know, where are they even looking at that? in their life and in connection with others, you know, there's, well, you have to look at where you aren't loving yourself first. Right. And I think one of the areas that you touched on that was big was you called it the compare and despair, how that often Mm. leads to not loving yourself. (laughs) No, the compare and despair. I mean, I gave that a whole chapter. That's like my number one character defect. And I put a lot of character defects in there, but that is the one that will take me to my knees every time I do it. I'm either better than or less than, and normally I've come out 99% less than, and that's where I have to have boundaries around social media and how much I'm on it. And, you know, the people I follow or looking outside of myself, all that stuff, that is a brutal one to get rid of. Yeah, that was, I, I enjoyed that because that was a great way of putting the, the struggle that a lot of people go through. And I think even more now with like technology and social media amplifies that comparing and despairing. And that wasn't just because of it, that's been there for a while, but it, I think it amplifies it and it, it gets people to do that to like an exponential level but it's important because that comparing and despairing is never going to lead to one humility, which we talked about, but two, it won't lead to yeah. self-love either. You know, it, it takes you to the opposite directions. Yeah. Oh, it's, it literally will wipe me of all joy. It's, and I talk about it in that aha moment with my friend Glam Girl and, you know, I having a great day, enjoying a bath. And I look at Instagram and I see Glam Girl is living in her huge mansion house, you know, and it just 
crashed my day, like crashed it. And that's the thing. What we do is we look at these photos and these posts and we compare our inner work to other people's outside. And usually they're filtered and not real. And that was the God shot that came. Glam girl called me to an hour or two later after that. And she literally said she was having the worst time with her husband and miserable. And, and that is not what the picture showed. And it was such an aha moment. Like you cannot compare your inside to somebody else's outside, what they're portraying. It's not real. And I still struggle with that. And I have to remind myself, this is not real. What's going on with me, the work I'm doing is what really matters. Stay in your own lane, stay in your own lane. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's great stuff. How do we, so I got a big question for you. I want to see what your answer yeah. is. How do we bring mm-hmm. better attention to the issue of like sex and love, love addiction? How do we well, get it more never... noticed or to try and help this? Well, that's why I spoke out. I mean, that's the mission I'm on. I'm on the mission in this lifetime to normalize sex and love addiction, that there's no shame or stigma that people, if you look at any of your friends, probably a bunch of them have gone to bad relationships or stayed in painful relationships or kept bouncing from relationship to relationship to relationship. And you're like exhausted listening to them or call you with problems. I'm trying to normalize, like, this is not real. That's not what a healthy relationship looks like. There should not be drama in your life is how I first try to get the word out. If you have drama in your relationship, a friendship, family member, you know, partner, there's some issue going on. There's some things you probably need to work on. And the first thing I tell people, and please, if you're listening, if anything resonates, go online, answer the 40 self-diagnosed questionnaire that I had to answer 12 years ago go, you know, 40 self-diagnosed questionnaire slaw. It comes up. It's easy questions. Like, do you look for someone to fix you? Are you losing track of the number of people you sleep with? Are you a constantly going from relationship to relationship? It's easy. Yes or no questions and answer that. And they say, if you get more than five yeses, you might have a problem in relationships. And so that's the first thing. So I just want to like, bring it out there. Like, let's stop Keeping it a secret. Let's just say, hey, I struggle. I use people to fill me. I need to find a way out because that will never, there is no perfect person that is going to give you your self-worth. It's not possible. Humans are flawed. They are going to disappoint you. They are going to abandon you. But what you can't abandon is yourself. So I'm hoping this normalizes it. I'm trying to do it. Nobody, none of my other fellows are doing it with me, but hopefully you know we're opening the conversation to talk about it more yeah and that's great too because now as as we're talking i'm thinking more about ways as a professional to recognize some of these things and issues and i mean i got plenty of people that come to me and there's there's family problems going on but we don't always think to look for like the love and sex even though they might say sex is an issue or that their their love is trouble we look at that as then it's like a marriage issue that there's something maybe from their past. That's like a, it's a trauma issue. And while those things are all going on, like we sort of neglect to think about like, well, where is this potentially in the realm of like love and sex addiction? So I think paying attention to those and then encouraging people to like answer those questions or just explore more resources about it would be very beneficial because I can't believe that. So just by numbers, right where I I currently work at a clinic where there's over 400 patients who are there for Mm -hmm. substance use addiction. And part of it is you can't tell me that some percentage don't have love and sex addiction issues as well, but we don't really do much to try. Probably most of them. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a lot of them, but we (laughs) don't. No, I'm telling you, we have a lot of people in other programs pretty much come to us the last resort. Like we're the last line of defense. <laughs> yeah. Because they realize, you know, you get rid of the the substance, you get rid of that, those behaviors, you get rid of the cigarettes, then, you know, whack-a-moles. It's, it's 
it's never going to go away unless you look at the core issue. Those are just things you did to cover the main issue. And usually it stems from childhood and your core relationships with your parents are the first time you fell in love and got rejected. All that stuff defines us as a people. And we take that into our adulthood and people need to look and say, Hey, I keep getting into bad relationships. I keep thinking like I'm with someone I love and then I fall out of love so quickly. Like what is going on here? This is not normal. And so you can help me in your field. And it's hilarious. I, I had a woman reach out to me last week and she said, I just finished your book. My therapist rep recommended it. And it was like the heavens opened up and I was like, oh my God, that is exactly why I wrote it to help people. And for a, a professional to give it to somebody and say, Hey, read this, this might help you that I, my work is done. Right. Like yeah, I recommended, I recommended your book to two colleagues who do a lot of work in relation to like women and, and sex related issues. But that's one of the reasons why I love reading books before, you know, I don't, I like to read it to, to be able to give my feedback. The same things that I shared with you are the things I would tell clients that I work with about why I would recommend this book. And really there's not a lot of books out there in general about the topic the books that I've read on the topic usually come from like professionals, you know, like counselors yeah. or therapists and in that realm of explaining the issue. But yours is one of the first ones that I have now that comes from the person's story, the person's journey. I got a ton of those for drug abuse. I got plenty even for gambling, <laughs> which is another missed topic. But talk about one where I have not seen a lot of stories written from your perspective very yeah moving. no none there's none and that's why i wrote it how i wrote it i like i said most of the books about love and sex addiction are so academic they're so clinical i would read them and i would get through a page and it would just it would <laughs> and i throw it against the wall and be like i it's not it's not calculating it's not sticking and so I wanted to write something where it takes you on a journey. It takes you, it entertains you because I am an entertainer and I saw it as how I wrote it. I saw in reality and in a movie. So I wrote it like that, but it also educates. Yes. It educates about what this addiction is. And that is the most important thing to me is to educate people. Now, the one thing, <laughs> so you got the book, you got the podcast and, but if I am correct on this, you are working on follow-ups to it? Yeah. Yes, I am. I've already wrote, I've written book two. I'm in rewrites right now. Yeah. I, after I finished book one and I was doing, you know, the editing process, I had all these other stories and past things. And I was like, I can't fit this in book one. It's already 95 thousand words. And I just sat down and I just started writing it. And it just, again, came out of me and we get to like follow Roxanne through the next journey of sober dating. And then there's a book three and you get to follow her through that journey. And then my husband was like, well, actually there's a fourth book because she will go through this and this and this. And I looked at him and I'm like, what? what are you talking about a fourth book? And he's like, no, like she, you have to talk about these other things. And I said, Oh, because he's the one that pressured me to write it. He was like, you need to write this book. You need to anyway. So yeah, there's, there's three other books. It's a, it's a four book series. I am yeah. so excited to find out about those and read those because that's another thing that's not very common. You don't really have these types of stories as series. It's usually like a one book maybe a second follow-up book, but that's a, that's a very, that's a rarity to see that in this field. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, you know, I guess I'm just coming in full blaze of glory. Like here it all is, here's the journey. But you know, my husband just said, you, you're helping people every day. So just stay open. And the books are just how I'm helping people. And 
I'm really proud. Like I, I didn't even say I have ADHD. I'm dyslexic. Like I never wanted to write a book. I failed English. I still wrote a book and you can do anything if you're doing it for the right reasons. And that's why I think it's all just flowing so organically because it's to help people. I think you're doing a lot of breakthrough work with this. I mean, it's really Thank you. amazing to hear that it's it's a breakthrough for something that's been needing attention for quite a while. This isn't something that's like brand new, but, you know, you sharing your story, writing the book, you know, the podcast, the turning it into a series, you know, this is becoming just some breakthrough work in the area of sex and love addiction that's been way overdue. Thank you. That I could cry right now. That is the kindest thing to say. Cause that's, that's the whole reason I did it. I just really want to break down these walls and just t- let's talk about the things we're scared to talk about because we're all dealing with some kind of ism. And this is what my ism look like. I use people. And I, and I, and part of what I'd like to do on the podcast is, is to keep talking about issues and to not just have an episode and forget about them. There's a lot of ones where I repeat them and continue to focus on them because it happens too often where it's mental health month and we'll talk about it for a whole month and then we'll kind of move on to the next thing. It's like, no, like let's keep talking about all these issues. So for me, when I talk about, you know, addiction and recovery and talk about stuff and related to it, it's not going to be just about the substance use or the gambling or the pornography that I've done work with. But now we're going to keep talking about the love addiction, the sex addiction and stuff like that so that it doesn't just become something that goes back into the shadows and the dark, because I always believe that that's what addiction wants is things to be secretive and to be not talked about. So it can kind of crawl away and that's where it can really get to people. So we've got to continue to have those conversations. So all your work and and just talking with you about now is going to do good for me to, to talk about it. Uh, on the podcast, but also as a counselor and a therapist and supervisor to make more of an effort to actually pay attention to these things and inquire about them or encourage people to get some help or just to do a questionnaire. Um, All those things is coming out of this. So I really appreciate you reaching out to me and to sharing your book with me, which I greatly enjoyed reading. Yay. Thank you. I'm so glad. I'm so happy. Yeah, that's amazing. So one thing is, there's a couple of things. People can go to your website, which mm-hmm. is brianddavis.com. Mm-hmm. They can read your book, which is Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, a novel. Your podcast is called Secret Life. Mm-hmm. And then Instagram, which is Secret Life Novel, is one that you interact with people with, correct? Yeah. And my Instagram, the Brianne Davis, I answer all my DMs, especially if you're looking for help or where the questionnaire is, where meetings are. I try to help every single person that reaches out to me. I answer personally myself. And that's great. Cause I know some other people that really do connect with people who reach out to them. So I'm always telling people, you know, reach out to them or follow them. And there's a good chance you'll hear from them and you might mm-hmm. get to talk to them, which is as a reader or someone who is looking for help, that is very um, helpful and valuable to them. Yeah, I just, I like I said, I just, if, if you can imagine the world, every single person is filled internally by themselves. Can you imagine what a beautiful world it would be? That's what I always picture. Every time I help someone, I think, wow, that ripple effect is going to be so amazing because the ripple effect of when people act out, when they use, when they cheat, when they are constantly lying or keeping secrets or, you know, not living their full potential self, going for the unavailable person, that ripple effect affects the next relationships, children. Generationally, it goes down over and over. When I was doing that work, I realized how much damage I caused. 
So now what I'm trying to do is the ripple effect of self-love and, and kindness and be, you know, and not using people and the ripple effect that that is creating for generations, I hope will, you know, heal a bunch of people. Yeah. And you're doing it now. I mean, so that is happening (laughs) and it's happening to, you know, you always say like the one person, but it's, it's more than likely happening to other people. So, you know, I knew you did a lot of work when you, we connected and you shared some stuff with me reading your book and all that, but just with talking to you, all this breakthrough stuff is just more and more that you're contributing to this issue. So wish you nothing but continued best with doing all this stuff because you are definitely making a big difference. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I really thank you for joining me and, you know, listeners, visit the areas that we talked about, check out the social media stuff as well. I'll be posting things, directing you to see some of her stuff. I am also going to think of how to create a love yourself challenge. And I'll probably be in contact with you about what you think it would be like. And we'll find some way to get that sort of thing rolling because I think that would be just a unique thing to have continue from this and build on that, helping people learn to love themselves. Perfect. I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. So thanks for joining me, Brianne. It was a privilege. I'm really looking forward to seeing the the two follow-ups. So I'll be paying attention Mm -hmm. for that and just the other work that you do with this area of love and sex addiction. All right. So check out our stuff and pay attention to some of the other things that we have going on. The love yourself challenge will be exciting to do read her book, listen to her podcast. And as always, I hope you learn something.